This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 245, June the 15th, 1991. This evening, Otto Scott and I have with us Walter Lindsay, one of the leaders of the Friends of Calcedon. Walter is also the top man in the field of computers. In fact, Douglas Murray speaks of him as one of the handful of top experts in the country. And Walter Lindsay returned recently from India. And I'll ask you, Walter, to tell us why you went there and with whom you spent your time. Thank you, Rush. I was in India for two weeks teaching some classes to one of the companies that my company does business with. So I gave seven days of classes, um, technical instruction, to this company's technical people about our software. Um, while I was there, I had some chances to take three-day trips, as well as, um, um, and I managed to spend two days sick in bed. That was not in the plans, but... <laughs> The, the South Indian food is renowned for being extremely spicy and bore a hole through my stomach. <laughs> and I thank you for your kind words about my expertise, although I'm not certain I quite agree with um, that. <clears throat> Let me mention a couple of um, uh, a couple of my experiences in India. Um, I had a strange feeling as time went on in India that it, this was a different sort of thing that I had ever been through. I was in a culture that was completely uninfluenced by Christianity and by Christian thought. And I didn't realize the implications at the time. And um, it, was, it was only as I came back that I began to understand what that meant. While I was there, I... First of all, my first few days I thoroughly enjoyed because I was in a nice hotel and I was in an interesting place, and I've seen pictures of this sort of hotel in movies, for example. And it was fascinating and quite exciting. But as I began to have to go out and to interact with people in the culture, it, um, my perceptions began to change quite a bit. And I realized that my perceptions didn't change because um, the culture was necessarily different. I've had chances to interact with people from many different cultures and have had very good friends. And so I have experienced different cultures. And that the food did not agree with me, I think I've lived through that before. And quite honestly, it was that I began to experience great feelings of being surrounded by uncleanness, as if I were in a place that, where there was pollution around me. Um, some of the things that, that led to that um, sort of feeling are, um, for example, um, the sanitation practices have not been influenced by Christian culture. Um, the Bible gives certain things about washing of hands. And there, um, they have squatties, which are fine, which are these open pits in the ground where people squat when they need to relieve themselves. But there's a little bucket with a pail next to it. And so that was a change um, that I was in, that was very different, that an obvious sign that the culture is different and that Christian ways of, of cleanliness had not influenced that culture at all. Another way that took me a long time to really understand was um, 
an aloofness, an active sort of aloofness. I've been around people who just didn't see me. I've lived in large cities. And when you're in a large city, as you walk down the road, you don't see people. There are too many people. You just don't run into them. But there in India, I seem to run into an active sort of um, ignoring of who I was. Um, I began to get the sensation that, yes, they seem to believe that life is sacred and there are certain things you don't do to living organisms because inherently they're sacred. But I personally was less than worthless, it seemed. That, um, that unless I was paying somebody to do something, in which case they did a lot for me, or if they were a beggar and wanted my money, then they paid attention to me. But the interaction seemed to be based a lot on ignoring one another in a very significant way. And that was fascinating. Did they seem hostile? They did not seem hostile, necessarily, but... Um, um, well, if you walk down a street in New York, you do not catch anyone's eye. Well, I think one of the problems is that religiously, all life is equally sacred in India with the Jains uh, who wear a mask over their face lest they swallow a gnat. They go to the extreme in the sacredness of life. So if you cannot kill cows, you cannot kill monkeys, you cannot kill man-eating tigers and so on, nor even a worm. What you are saying is that the life of a man and the life of a worm are of equal worth and are equally nothing. So, given a culture like that, uh, I think there are problems. Now, Albert Schweitzer propagated that idea in the West. Yes, he picked that up. But uh, <clears throat> going back to this business of feeling as though you were invisible, is that what you're saying? Or that there was a deliberate... Disdain? Well, uh, the avoidance. Right yes. Avoidance. Let me give um, an example. I was standing in line in order to turn my camera in before touring a particular king's palace at a place called Mysore. Um, and while I was standing there, I was holding out the camera, and you're supposed to attach a one rupee note to the camera. And the attendant would come each time, and he would look at my camera, and then studiously ignore it. He would not come anywhere, not acknowledge my existence. And a man came up and pushed beside me, and um, he, knew how, he knew I was there. He looked at me before he came up, but he came and kind of pushed beside me. And so I pushed my chest a little bit into his back, and he grunted and moved back. And the looks seemed to be a little different, and I recognized that as a Westerner and an outsider, I may be reading things into it, but the emotions that I experienced were very much that... Um, um, a kind of ignoring one another as an active way of life. Well, that impersonality was commented on by people who went to work with Schweitzer. Since all life was equally sacred, you as a co-worker were no more personal to him than the worms he would pick up after a rainstorm and take off the walk so they would not be squashed. That impersonality, because it's life, not persons that count. 
that's how it felt. That's interesting. What was your experience with the people you had to teach? How did they respond? I was introduced as an expert, uh-huh. and so that helped that, them respond positively. Sure. Um, one fascinating little incident that one woman came in on the second day of classes for, um, she slipped in right after the morning break, and she asked a question. And um, this particular woman, um, well, the person who was next to her silenced her, and then she disappeared after the next break. That was fascinating. Um, they treated me with a significant amount of deference, um, but they also needed me. Well, Naipaul in his book, India, A Wounded Civilization, points out the contradiction. They use computers, they use jet engines, they use radio, they use film, they have videos, and uh, they have movies, and so forth. And yet they despise the civilization that has produced all these wonders, and they despise the people uh, who run that civilization, in other words, the West. They want to use the fruits of the West without acknowledging the existence of the West, and they do not seem to believe that all of these uh, instruments are arduously developed, so to speak, as a result of work and application. They seem to accept them as gifts from the gods to all mankind. It's a version almost of the cargo cult of the primitives in the South Seas. The third world, and I consider India a third world country, is a giant area where they believe in the cargo cult. We're the ones that come over in the airplanes and drop these goodies on them. But uh, they don't want to get any closer. Gustav Stolper in the Age of Fable in the 30s called attention to the fact that India, a place of nothing but bloodshed and conflict between groups, was made into an area of peace and uh, famines gradually eliminated by the British. And yet, at the height of the empire, they had only 5,000 Englishmen uh, running India. The rest, they were using the uh, local Hindu and Muslim leaders to do everything. How do they regard the British? You watch television, no doubt. I would characterize it as a mixed respect, but they weren't very happy that the British had been there. It was a humiliating memory. That's a good way to put it. They were, um, they were proud that they had resisted the British religion. Oh, yes. That um, Hinduism had survived. Uh-huh. There was one political <clears throat> candidate that I remember reading in the paper who was... Um, stating that Hinduism was here to stay because if centuries of British rule couldn't remove it, then it's Mm -hmm. firm. Um, I did notice that on the television um, and the Hindi movies that were playing that I Mm. would glance at, that they had um, a Muslim sultan 
who um, was shown as a very heroic figure, and then um, um, a cramped, crabby British general, and of course the Muslim sultan beat the British general, and the British general fled well, very ignobly. <laughs> yes, well, the Indians beat us, you know. <laughs> it's very, it's very amusing. Naipaul's idea was that they at one time had a civilization which, difficult as it was, as Rush indicates, nevertheless, as far as they were concerned, answered the major problems of life. The caste system solved the problem of occupation, who does what, and who rules, and who does not, and so forth. Then they came into contact with the West, which was unable to swing them over to the West, and they're in a sort of crippled condition as far as their own culture is concerned, and they have not joined the new. So then he got the idea of a wounded civilization. He was so criticized for that book that he has later recanted a good deal of it, but I think he was right on target the first time around. I noticed there that that the people would often talk about that um, it was difficult to get certain goods there, that technology goods in general could not be imported unless they were produced in India. Um, people had to ride very low-powered motor scooters until the last few years. When um, uh, a company, an Indian company began working with Suzuki to build higher-powered two-wheeled two cycles, and that's what most of the people tend to ride there. So they have a they have a high tariff wall, extremely high. You know that the chemical company that at Bhopal was it that had the accident, yeah, where Union several Carbide. Union Carbide's plant, where several hundred or more were knocked out, mm-hmm. were killed. Not a single European was allowed inside that plant mm-hmm. at any time. Nobody from the company was allowed inside the plant, even though cyanamide or whatever it was had owned the company, owned the plant. They couldn't go into it. It was all handled by people of India. And yet, when they had a disaster, it was the West that had to pay the fine. Yes. And... They sued in an American court, and we were insane enough to hear it. Well, an American court is insane enough to do anything, you know. Yes. If they really operate as sort of a charity, this is a mm-hmm. great international charity we operate. It's not a sovereign nation. We live to help the world. When Mark was there a decade ago, when Mark rushed to me, my son, He found that uh, in construction work, uh, elderly women were breaking rocks with a hammer for the concrete mixer, which was a hand mixer, and women were carrying concrete in pans on their head up a scaffolding several stories high. It was as primitive as could be in terms of Gandhi's insistence that small is beautiful. Is that still true? Outside my hotel room, there was a construction project. And as he said, um, the way dirt was moved was that um, a very 
half-starved men and women would have things wrapped around their heads and then they would have some sort of flat plate-like thing about two and a half feet wide and there would be some dirt put in it. And that's how dirt was moved. I couldn't notice that very much dirt was moved in the two weeks that I was there. <laughs> well, they weren't using their heads well. <laughs> <laughs> um, the scaffolding that they used was um, uh, very slowly built out of um, various pieces of timber that was tied together with ropes. And very, very slowly the scaffolding came up. So I didn't have chances to observe large construction projects, but what happened right outside my room was extremely primitive. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. You brought back some newspapers. Yes, I did. English language newspapers in India. Um, there are enough languages from the different areas in India that if um, uh, people want to do business or if they want to be read, that they tend to be published in English. Um, one particularly interesting section that I'd like to read it. Uh, at some length here, um, comes off of a little bit of what you mentioned earlier, Otto. Um, it has to do with a particular man, Mature Kanapion, who's president of um, some organization, which is part of a water district, um, had political pretensions, and here he's um, giving a speech, and this is a brief description of it. I need to mention that the um, region that I was in, um, in the town of Bangalore, is called Karnataka. That's the, the county or the country of Karnataka. And um, this speech is given in the neighboring region of uh, Tamil Nadu. And it was um, in that region that uh, Rajiv Gandhi was assassinated. Oh, it's in the south. Yes, it is definitely in the south. Uh, was it tropical? It hit 122 degrees one day in Madras while I was there. But I was fortunate to be in Bangalore, which is um, about a, several thousand feet above sea level. And... Never quite broke a hundred. Oh, lucky you. A hundred and You can imagine with heat like that that there are certain water problems, and that's what this particular little section is about. <clears throat> Let me read it here. Canipian, also an agriculturalist, wants the judgment of the tribunal to be a precedent in future regarding water disputes all over India. There's a particular water dispute going on between Karnataka and Tamil Nadu. Abruptly, he turned aggressive and said, Karnataka people are not doing agriculture properly. Our people in Mysore, Kolagal, uh, forgive the pronunciation, Charmanjur and T. Narsapur areas, follow correct practices and take out three crops there. If Kanadagas, people who live in Canada, correct their ways, they too can cultivate three crops. Then the tone softened. Karnataka must give water to Tamil Nadu on humanitarian grounds, he pleaded. Party workers slowly filtered in for a meeting. Within minutes, Canipian's adrenaline shot up again. The voice rose as he said, Water is not wasted here. You know how they, are, you know how they waste it in Karnataka. If Karnataka people use, more, use water more efficiently, they can raise three crops. They have sufficient water. Party workers in the room nod in appreciation of Canipian's views. Any suggestion that the issue has assumed emotional overtones is likely to fall on deaf ears in the Tamil Nadu. Um, and then they mention a particular um, partyman explained that intense emotional attachment is to important issues is part of the Tamil political idiom. In other words, public men in Tamil Nadu tend to see emotionalism not as the opposite of rationalism, but as normal and realistic political behavior. 
Thus, the Tamil politician freely uses the Kaveri water issue. It's the Kaveri River water that's in dispute. Uses this issue to play the gallery and to create an enemy in the minds of the masses. Ironically, though there is very little water in the imposing mature dam built in 1930, it was the most empty reservoir I've ever seen. Mm. The problem is not severe in the region around mature. Water is easily available from bore wells and wells. Three cops are cultivated in the lush paddy fields that dot the roadside. And um, several things out of that were particularly interesting. One is um, very much people blaming other people and using emotionalism to play people rather than facts, emotionalism. This is an Indian newspaper, by the way, that this, this is published in. Well, we're, we're, we've moved well into that same area. Uh, there's now a campaign on to the effect that too many people are making too much money and that uh, they should be taxed more heavily than they are being taxed so that those who aren't making enough money could be better off. And there's a lot of emotionalism in that issue. Share the wealth, soak the rich, and there's nothing more divisive, conceivable, than to rally the mob against the successful. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's obviously almost an act of hatred against the society to inspire people in that direction. But that's what we're getting. And I think, although I might be committing heresy to say it, I think that's part and parcel of the democratic process. Yes. That's what both de Tocqueville more than a century and a half ago, and Akunel Ladin today are saying. It's to set people against one another for your yes. own advantage. In a stable society, which is based on harmony, if there are too many poor, you would expect some proposals to create more wealth to make better use of the land, to provide more employment, and so forth. But the idea of taxing one class of citizens more than another is inherently injurious, besides being unequal. Mm -hmm. So the India, which is already uh, in bad condition, is adding to its own problems by being pushed into what they call the democratic system. I, mean, I shouldn't say this, I guess, but I think they did better under the Maharajas <clears throat> and their own leaders and their own culture. Yes, and uh, 30 years ago, the two countries regarded as most likely to collapse before the end of the century and to famine and anarchy were India and Egypt because of the very great poverty in both places. And uh, India today is showing signs, especially since the recent assassination, of falling apart. Yes. the What they had before the English came was a series of countries India was not a one country. Mm -hmm. it, it's a great subcontinent 
with a number of small countries in it. Each and occasionally they had wars with each other, but at no time did they all have wars with each other. So the wars, like wars in Europe, in Europe was a continent with a bunch of small countries. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had wars from time to time, but not all the time. Now the idea of a unified, centralized India really doesn't make too much sense when you think of the differences of the culture. Nor does a unified, centralized Europe. Because whoever is going to put the Irish together with the Turks uh, is going to have to be a miracle worker. So the whole idea of political unity, overriding cultural differences, I think, is beginning to be exploded in front of our eyes. The culture of the leaders of India is the culture of Harvard, Oxford, and Cambridge. And it has no relationship to the realities of everyday life in India. It would be as though all three of us went to school in China and came back to apply the Chinese system. Yes. There seem to be some signs that, that that's breaking apart. I'm told that the people who, over, who are 50 years or older, who lived through Mahatma Gandhi's day, tend to be firm, firm followers of um, a party known as the Congress Party, which has been ruled by the, um, the Gandhi family. Right. Um, I've also been told that those who are under the age of 40 tend to be of late firm supporters of the BJP, which outsiders have characterized as the fundamentalist Hindu party. Mm-hmm. And the young people tend to say things, um, I'm told, um, along the lines of, well, we know that the BJP candidates are making inflammatory statements, but they really don't mean it. And if they're in power, they were, really won't do the things that they're saying. That's what they said about Hitler. That's exactly what I thought as I heard that. Um, so there seems to be very much a sense that uh, a reaction against the um, secularization, as it's, as it's often called in India, um, that the Congress Party tried to promote. And I'm very much a turn to, um, uh, some of the, the candidates have said that India will never be freed until it gets back to its Hindu roots. Well, they have, I think, nine or ten million Muslims. That's a lot of Muslims. Even though it's an enormous country, it's still a lot of people. And they have a few million Christians whom they are trying to eliminate. And... Uh, Missionaries are no longer allowed there. No longer allowed. No. In the name of tolerance. Yes. There are, have been statements made in the political arena that Muslims aren't real Indians. Muslims are not real Indians. Yes, that's what the paper reported. Several things, several people was having said. There are other sects also besides uh, the Hindus. But, of course, Hinduism has broken into a number of different groups. Yes, you have the Parsis, who are Zoroastrians. You have the uh, uh, Jains, who are extreme Hindus. You have uh, some Buddhists, not many. You have the Animists among the hill peoples, especially in Bangladesh. 
So you have a variety of peoples and faiths. It has uh, a great many different racial strains as well. You see that in the different complexions. Yes. And it has jungles. Yes. It has great cities. It has people sleeping on the streets in Bombay. Mm-hmm. Somebody wrote a book, I think they called it The Heavenly City. And they tried to promote the idea that those people were happy. Mm-hmm. And they also have um, uh, what you talked about, about the, the small states at war with each other. In the Kashmir, Indian troops and yeah. Pakistani troops regularly fight. And the Sikhs. Exactly, in the um, uh, Bihar, the Punjab, I don't remember which. I was reading in the paper that I read, I noticed that it seemed on the average about one person assassinated a day in either Bihar or Punjab. Oh, my. And it was usually, I'm sorry, one person assassinated every two days, forgive me. Um, And these people usually were candidates who were running for office or people who had previously held office. And so this violence that you're talking about is being carried carried on by other means. Mm-hmm. I also noticed that this sort of haggling between different states um, is occurring in other ways on the political front. That one particular party will um, do things that will damage another particular party's um, chances, and it's extremely overt, and it would be almost impossible to miss it. Um, uh, in Bihar, they talked a lot about the law and order situation. Um, but that wasn't the only place with unrest. And in Bihar, the government is um, controlled by a different party than the government is, as they call it, as at the center, as they call it. And so they were considering postponing the elections and doing things like that, which was very illegal, apparently, by Indian law, from what I could pick up. And um, the Bihar government wanted to deploy 50,000 home guards, must be like our national guards in the States. They wouldn't let them do that. But in Punjab, or I forget which other state, I believe it was Punjab, they let them deploy about 40,000 home guards to run the election. So there's brazen duplicity and people doing political haggling in the most obvious of ways that are going on. That even though they aren't actually shooting at each other, they're doing as much as they can. And with um, Rajiv Gandhi's recent assassination, um, it's apparently extremely un-Indian, some of the Indian people that I work with are. And they were actually quite shaken up because somebody going on a suicide mission, maybe in the Middle East, but in India, they were really concerned about their homeland and what was happening in it. I wonder if the subdivisions, the governmental subdivisions, what do they call them, provinces? Countries. Countries. I wonder if the borders of these countries are remain what they were originally, or whether the English redrew the borders. Because, you know, in Africa, where the Westerners redrew the tribal borders, they put antagonistic tribes together. And I just wonder if the divisions in India are uh, each one homogenous, or whether they're mixed. From what I can pick up, Canada, the national or the country language of Canada was primarily, um, I'm sorry, the, I was in the state or the country of Karnataka, and the language spoken primarily in that region is Canada. And so there, from what I could tell, there seems to be a single linguistic commonness in the area. 
And from old maps that I could see, the um, current boundaries of um, Canada are roughly what um, uh, the king of Mysore and um, of previous centuries would rule over. So it seems that they did maintain some of that. Well, divide and conquer is an old premise. And of course, in the Baltic republics, the uh, Soviet Union has moved in all kinds of peoples in order to drown out the majority of Lithuanians, Latvians, and Estonians. And some of that has taken place, I understand, throughout Asia. The one country that has resisted any kind of mixing is, of course, Japan. But uh, there have been uh, great movements of peoples in India and uh, the complexion of the various regions has been affected. Well, we, we know that they uh, either cut off or drove out many of the Muslims, and that was the yes. that was at the Muslim request. Pakistan and Jinnah, I believe it was, <coughs> insisted that the Muslim minority would not live with the Hindu majority, but he didn't get them all. Mm-hmm. And the Sikhs want to break away. Yes. Because they don't want to be under the Hindus. And the Sri Lankans mm-hmm. are engaged in an effort at independence. So there's a... It sounds as though they're going back to the original countries and religions. Now, as you know, in the old days, in Europe as well as uh, in other parts of the world. It was one language, one church, Mm -hmm. one religion. One country, one religion. Mm -hmm. And the argument is in the Bible that a country with two religions doesn't hold together. Yes. That modern, the modern world has assumed that that's not true. We've disproven it. But how, how, uh, how old is the modern world? The modern world is, it really isn't, historically speaking, very old. And it's already near death. Well, it's in a state, it's in a suicidal frenzy. Yes. Well, India, like so many of the post-war countries, is an artificial creation. And like the African countries, I don't see how it can endure. As a... As a uh, Unified state. Yes. Well, you know that uh, this is a little bit off the track. Some friends of mine in the oil business tried to do business with the Iranians, the Persians, and it, it, it proved to be impossible because they could not accept the idea that both parties could benefit from a negotiation. <coughs> as soon as... Yes. As soon as an agreement was reached, they decided that the other guy was getting too much, otherwise he wouldn't have agreed. So they used the agreement as a basis for new haggling. Capitalism does not fit the Persian temperament. The Persians wanted all. They give you nothing. And I have the feeling, I, I don't know, of course there's so many different people in India. I've only met a few specimens. 
who've always, I think I said this before, they've always given me lectures on discrimination in the West, which I think takes a, an awful lot of chutzpah. But uh, they didn't strike me, any of them, as being too well integrated into our system of courtesy. I mean, it wouldn't occur to me to go to India to give the Indians lectures. But everyone that I've met has given me a lecture on the West. And I would assume from that cultural difference that capitalism would be difficult to plant. Commerce, I could see, but not capitalism. There are some state restrictions on capitalism that I was able to discover in talking with waiters. Um, for example, there is a particular kind of mango called the Alfonso mango, which um, has no fibers in it, essentially. Mm. And so they serve them in restaurants um, with dishes is cut up in their wonderful flavors. But they don't grow in Canada. I'm sorry, in Canartica, in, this, in the country where I was. So they have to import them. But importing them means that you have to pay high tariffs in order to cross state boundaries. Um, but the government understands that hotels manage to get lots of money from tourists. And so there are special deals so that hotels can move things around without um, these tariffs. Um, so from what I could gather, that there are some significant impediments that way that the various states already um, put up tariff against each one another. Against each other. Like got tariffs it. between our states, which we theoretically don't have, but every truck driver or truck operator will tell you we do. Well, I think one of the problems of our times is that we look at the past as primitive and we don't appreciate what's involved in its thinking. And outside the biblical world and the Christian world, you have had polytheism. Yeah. Now, polytheism is a belief that uh, there are many forces in nature and you try to align yourself with those natural forces that will be advantageous to you. But the assumption is there is continual conflict in evolution or in nature, whatever your perspective is. Darwin's idea of the survival of the fittest is an ancient pagan concept. Sure. So that... Uh, it is inescapable for these people anywhere in the world outside of Christendom to see nothing but conflict as basic to life and to have a total distrust because nothing can work out for the advantage of all concerned. Well, the biblical doctrine of the harmony of interests has militated against that and we're losing that in the West. So... Uh, there is a problem in a culture like India because they've had a superimposed harmony by British rule. And now all the old polytheistic conflicts are coming to the forefront. Well, that's very well said. You know that the uh, there are some observers who believe that the Europeans lost essential control of the blacks of black Africa because of World War One, 
the fact that Europe got into war, that the white man, the Christian white people, went to war with each other, convinced the black Africans in black Africa that we are hypocrites, we don't believe our own religion, and therefore they lost respect for us. Also, the French brought in African troops and used them. Yes. And it was the African troops going back. Who carried the, uh, carried the message. Carried the message. Well, they sent those troops into the German occupation territory. Yes. You know. That was a... It was a terrible thing. It was done to punish the Germans. Well... Did you have a chance to socialize with any Indians while you were there? You went out to dinner a few times, or did you chat about various things apart from the work? Yes, we did. Some of the topics that, as we, um, they took me out to dinner um, to a Chinese restaurant every day for lunch. I couldn't take the Indian food, and I let them know ahead of time that. Well, they put you down once, didn't it? It definitely put me down. <laughs> But luckily, Indian doctors make house calls to luxury hotels, so that helped. <coughs> um, um, yes, at the Chinese uh, restaurant, we had quite a few discussions. Some of the topics that they were particularly interested in were um, uh, the Persian Gulf crisis. Did oh. it impact my life? Did it impact you? Yes. No, personally. It, it really had almost no impact on them. Well, they were all very curious about this, and... I couldn't understand the expressions on their faces as I talked about how it had almost no impact personally on my life. Um, from what I'm able to tell, apparently India used to buy Iraqi oil from the Soviet Union by paying in rupees. They can't do that at the moment. They have to pay in hard currency. And so that's causing a lot of problems with trade imbalances at the moment. Um, that was one thing they were very interested in. Did they have dollars? No. Apparently, they aren't allowed to have any foreign currency. Ah. And in the newspaper, in fact, somebody was arrested for having some. A really honest possession. I believe so. Hmm. Now, that's, that's something different, isn't it? Yes. And were you required to exchange dollars for rupees at the set price? Yes, at the government set price, and if I did not have an um, uh, exchange certificate, I couldn't spend the rupees. And at the hotel, I was required to pay in dollars. How could you do that? Um, traveler's checks and plastic money. I see. So I had to carry that in. in so there the are dollars. Currency. So there are dollars in circulation. No. no they give they give you change back in rupees. Yes. But they, they have your dollar. Yes. Interesting. But I could exchange my rupees on the way out for the for the same rate that I that I got them in the beginning without any sort of charge. So there was a little kindness that way. Another thing that people asked me about was um, racial prejudice. Oh yes, in the states. Well, that's, brought their, that up. that's their favorite topic. And um, uh, that very night, after having an interesting discussion about this, and I talked about some of the situation here, I found in um, uh, a newspaper called The Hindu an article titled, A Separate Electorate for the Scheduled Class. In other words, that a political affirmative action needed to be taken um, for the, um, uh, um, I forget the word, the untouchables. Yes. 
and that in fact the article blames political bungling for them uh, for the affirmative action not having worked out very well in the past and um, um, and had a lot of discussion about that um, when I brought this article in the guy who um, asked me about the um, racial problems in the states didn't particularly want to talk about this though no he didn't no he didn't it was interesting he looked at the article and um, didn't say too much and kind of went on to other topics and didn't look very comfortable they call him the scheduled cast, huh? That's what the paper says. I'm scheduled castes and scheduled tribes. I'm not sure what it means. Was their attitude generally unfavorable to the United States? They knew that every American is rich. That was common knowledge. Hmm. And um, um, even so to the point that telling somebody that something costs um, several times its regular value was quite reasonable because they're so rich that it's, you know, you should ask for more money. Um, so that they kind of liked about Americans. Americans are very rich. Um, there was resentment event against the U.S. government um, among various po political officials, um, snide comments about um, uh, things about that the CIA was doing, and when U.S. troops brought in um, relief supplies into Bangladesh, um, some government officials voiced displeasure over that because they were just certain that the troops wouldn't leave, they said. They would stay and occupy that wonderful place. Exactly. How, what did they, uh, what, what was their position on the Gulf War? I didn't run across much of that, but they I didn't know. tell you. They, they just asked you yours. That's right. They didn't tell you theirs. That's right. And they asked me enough questions that I never had a chance to ask them I about see. their thoughts. I see. <laughs> <laughs> they were working the pump. They were definitely working the pump on that. Um, you also mentioned a moment ago about this constant negotiation that uh, there's no harmony oh, yes, of interest. Yes, yes. The area where I saw that extremely clearly was driving around. In India, I rented a car and along with the car came a driver. Did they drive on the right-hand side or the left? Well, they drove on the wrong side. Okay, the left. The left. On um, every side, someone told me once. It was definitely every side. <laughs> you had to have a driver. Yes, I am glad I didn't think of trying to drive myself. Right. Um, have you ever been in a crowd where there's um, extreme pushing and bustling? I understand that is a Middle Eastern custom. Oh, it was extreme on the roads. On the roads. Oh, tremendous. But not on the sidewalk. Um, I was never in an extremely thick crowd. But on That's the roads, right. the traffic speeds were low enough that there were the kind of maneuverings and shovings into every nook and cranny that I've only seen in extremely busy crowds of people. Hmm. Um, the speeds were slow enough, and the vehicle small enough, and um, there were enough scooters that they could wedge into every nook and cranny that was there. They have traffic lights? Uh, they had a few, and people generally seemed to obey them. And if a policeman held up his hand, people would stop, so they did obey the state in that way. And every driver of a two-wheeled vehicle, all motorized two-wheeled vehicle, always wore a helmet. The riders didn't. The drivers didn't. And apparently there was a law about that, that people would get arrested for not doing that. But there was 
the, the city streets were fairly tame compared to the country streets. Let me toss out um, uh, a scenario that too many times in the three little road trips that I had were repeated. Uh, imagine I'm sitting on the back seat and there's an ox cart in front of us, so my driver maneuvers to the right um, in order to pass the ox cart. Well, 100 yards down the road or so, approaching us on the right-hand side, is a brick truck. And um, zipping around him comes a bus or some other truck. And somehow the drivers manage to arrange it just right so that everybody accelerates or slows down just enough so that all four vehicles approach each other at the last second with, within a hairbreadth. They manage to shift in their lanes and managed to miss each other. And it's entirely possible that a bicyclist could have been driven off the road to be driving in the dust because he's fair game and you can push him off the road. And the thought that kept going through my mind was that if either any of the four engines involved choked for a moment, or if any of the drivers wasn't a professional, I would have been crunched. And indeed, as we did drive around, I did see um, two, two heavy trucks and a bus wedged into some sort of tight, squished formation where they managed to all collide. Um, incredible pushing, just, just as you described. No harmony of interest. I, know, I can't really remember seeing people give way to other people. It was basically push. Now, I've forgotten who. One of my seaman friends <clears throat> told me that he was in a Middle Eastern city, and I don't recall now which one. Might have been Baghdad, I'm not sure. But he said people walked around pushing each other with their hands. And he said he had never been so touched so often and jostled so often in his life. Especially because he was obviously a Westerner. Sure. And of course, when I was a boy in New York, everyone walked along the right-hand side of the sidewalk to keep from having to uh, lurch with one another. Lurching is a phrase of H. Allen Smith's, you know, where you move to the right, the other guy moves to the right, you move to the left, he moves to the left, and you do this two or three times. He said he did it deliberately, and his record was 23 lurches with somebody else, and the other guy finally fell to his knees. <laughs> There's no one like H. Allen Smith anymore. <laughs> I used to enjoy his writings. <laughs> well, apparently in India they just push. <laughs> Although they, you say they ignored. Yes, they did. Um, if you were only, only side vision. Most of the vehicles, larger vehicles on the back, have words painted, sound horn. Sound horn. So you honk your horn to let somebody know you're going to do something nasty to them. I see. Try to pass. If you're going to run them off the road, you sound your horn. <laughs> um, and the pedestrians, my driver would sound his horn, and the pedestrians would be standing there casually, and they wouldn't necessarily even look. They'd just sort of move the foot or two aside just enough to let my car pass a very close distance to them. And so that was fascinating to me. You just ignored the other car and you gave way just enough to let them pass. And at the last moment. And if you're a vehicle, you um, just kind of 
as long as you don't hit the person, you don't give them any sort of distance that way. It was fascinating. And um, being not used to going on the um, left-hand side of the street, my intuition was all wrong. So I tend to walk out in the street. People would honk. Oh, you have to draw back. back. Yeah, sure. You have to be very careful. And finally, by the end, I was disoriented enough. I knew I was disoriented. So I looked both ways twice before I took a step. That kept me safe. But I did see drivers pass just a few inches from me hmm. several times. You mentioned something uh, earlier today about the temples. You didn't find them as impressive as you expected? In fact, uh, more repulsive, to be honest. Were they, uh, were they dirty on the outside? Yes, yes they, they were. were. Um, quite dirty. And um, they were covered so thickly with figures of the gods that it was just a mass of, of these figures. Let me describe very quickly what yeah. one looked like. <laughs> Um, each of them, from what uh, uh, each of the ones that I saw, had a wall around it. And at one point in the wall, or sometimes two points in the wall, <coughs> there would be a gate. And over the gate was um, um, uh, vertical walls, uh, some sort of large box-like structure. And then on top of that, starting at about ten feet up or so, was a pyramidal structure that um, uh, was steeper than most roofs that you will find anywhere. And then up at the top, it was flattened. <coughs> And there was a whole pantheon of various gods and various poses up there on the walls of the figurine, up on the walls of the um, um, of the little pyramid on top. Um, you had to take off your shoes in order to go into the temple, and um, oftentimes there was a, a mass of people surrounding the front of the temple, <coughs> and um, uh, there were often beggars out there begging for alms. In fact, uh, every temple I saw had some people begging for alms at the gate. Um, there were hawkers as well, trying to sell me useless things for exorbitant prices, telling me how wonderful they were. And um, in many of them, there were people outside with postcards of the various things inside. And um, I never actually went in when I found as I approached the gate that I was extremely disinterested in taking off my shoes and going in this place. Um, I was also fascinated by, apparently, the public piety um, that various people have in order to give gifts to the temple, and um, uh, how much tax money at various points had been spent on the temple. That um, There was one temple near a king's palace at a place called Mysore, where um, the doors of the temple, I found out later, were six inches thick, about, I remember them being about ten feet high, and um, two and a half feet wide each, and apparently they're solid silver. Hmm. There's an astonishing amount of wealth taken away from the people for the public piety. Well, I didn't realize that the people were taxed for the temples. There's a state religion in a different... Each, each state has its own state religion. Is that the case? I do notice... I did notice that the um, things that people did varied from territory, from varied from area to area, and that different cities have their own individual gods as well. So I don't know if there was really a state religion fully. I see, or whether there was a state religion in each of the states. I can't say. Yeah. Well, our time is about up. Thank you, Walter. Is there a final statement you'd like to make in about a minute? I'm grateful to be a Christian. 
and I'm grateful to have grown up in the West. And as I look around at India, I'm fat, astonished to see how um, the various judgments that are mentioned in um, the Bible are all coming about. Climactic things, um, political things, uh, various things on the drought that I didn't mention but are quite, quite significant. And um, it's falling apart and breaking apart. And I'm grateful to live in a society that still has some remnants of Christian culture. Well, thank you, Walter, and thank you all for listening.